Chronicles Revisited Podcast, Episode 10, He Stopped Building Model Trains, Will Harvey and the Construction of Electronic Arts. Welcome to the Chronicles Revisited Podcast. I'm S.M. Oliva. I write the blog Computer Chronicles Revisited, which reviews the people, products, and companies featured on the PBS series that aired between 1983 and 2002. In this podcast, I go in-depth on stories that I've previously featured on the blog. For this episode, I'm looking at Will Harvey, a teenage computer programmer who sold his first major software hit, Music Construction Set, to Electronic Arts while he was still in high school. Music Construction Set was the second in a series of four construction set titles that helped define the early days of EA as it sought to build a new model for the fledgling computer games market in the United States. And Harvey himself parlayed his teenage success into a long career in the tech industry that continues to the present day. Will Harvey was born in 1967 and grew up in Northern California. At the age of 12, he became interested in computers after seeing one at a friend's house. Personal computers in the home were still a rarity in 1979, however, not to mention expensive. Nevertheless, Harvey set his sights on a Commodore PET, a business microcomputer released by Jack Tramiel's Commodore International in 1977. The PET's suggested retail price was $795, although by 1979 you could find them from some stores for around $600. Still, that was more money than the average 12-year-old made from his allowance. So Harvey cut a deal with his parents. He'd work a summer paper route to earn half the money towards the PET, and his parents would give him the other half. After fulfilling his end of the bargain and finally bringing home a PET, Harvey embarked on his new hobby as a computer programmer. As a 1984 San Francisco Examiner profile noted, once Harvey got into programming, he stopped building model trains. Programming at first did not mean developing games or entertainment software. The pet wasn't much use for either. Harvey's first programming endeavors focused on more practical applications. He wrote a program to help his mother, a college philosophy instructor, manage her grading system. He created another program, which he called The Collector, to help his younger brother better organize his baseball cards and stuffed animals. Harvey even started giving other family members specially created discs as birthday presents. Eventually, Harvey traded up from the pet to an Apple II. While still quite limited, at least the Apple could display bitmap graphics and produce some sound using a beeper-based speaker. With these upgrades, the now 15-year-old Harvey tried his hand at game design. After teaching himself 6502 assembly language, he created a Space Invader-style game where the player had to kill a group of bugs that blew colorful bubbles. The bubbles would eventually hatch new bugs if not destroyed. Harvey dubbed his finished game Lancaster. The name had nothing to do with the content of the game. He later recalled to Microtimes that while designing a logo, he decided the letters L-A-N-C fit together nicely. And he was studying the English Wars of the Roses in school at the time, so he went with Lancaster after the House of Lancaster. Naturally, once he had his game and a title, Harvey decided to find a publisher who could actually sell Lancaster. His first stop was Sirius Software, one of the earliest publishers of Apple II games. Harvey later recounted that he simply called up the company and asked to speak with their president. He actually got through and was invited to demo Lancaster at the company's offices in Sacramento. So Harvey took the bus to the state capitol. The meeting apparently didn't go as well as he'd hoped, however, and he ended up selling Lancaster to a smaller publisher called Silicon Valley Systems. 
Silicon Valley published a handful of Apple II and Atari 8-bit computer programs in 1982 and 1983, including Lancaster and The Collector. But the company apparently ceased active operations soon after. Harvey later bought back the rights to Lancaster, but it was never re-released. It would turn out that one aspect of Lancaster, its music, would set the stage for Harvey to see his first major commercial success. Harvey managed to create fairly complex Baroque-style background music for Lancaster, at least by Apple II standards. But he had no prior musical training or ability. Instead, he wrote a simple program to convert store-bought sheet music into sounds that the Apple II speaker could generate. After completing Lancaster, Harvey continued to fiddle with his rudimentary music transcription program. At some point in 1983, Harvey met with representatives from a newly established software company in San Mateo called Electronic Arts. Well, it was originally called Amazon Software when it was incorporated in May of 1982, but by the end of that year it was renamed Electronic Arts, better known by its initials EA. EA was the creation of an ambitious Stanford MBA named William Tripp Hawkins. Hawkins had been at Apple as its director of strategy and marketing, but his goal was always to build a computer game company, even before such a thing could viably exist. EA launched its first set of games at the June 1983 Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago, Illinois. Among the launch titles was Bill Budge's Pinball Construction Set, which actually predated the existence of EA. As you can probably guess from the name, Pinball Construction Set was the creation of a guy named Bill Budge. And in the relatively small world of Apple II computer games of the early 1980s, Budge was already something of a rock star. Like Will Harvey, Bill Budge started dabbling in computer programming as a teenager, although in Budge's case we're talking the late 1960s. It was only later, while Budge worked towards a PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, that he got his hands on an Apple II and started making and selling games as a side project. Budge produced his first game, a clone of the Atari arcade hit Pong, and ended up trading it to Apple in exchange for a printer. Budge later joined Apple as an employee. While working at the company's Cupertino offices, he noticed that many of his co-workers were obsessed with pinball. This prompted Budge to create an Apple II pinball game that he named Raster Blaster. Budge was not a gamer himself. He openly criticized arcade video games in the press, but he liked developing complex systems, and replicating the physics of pinball on an Apple II presented an attractive challenge. Budge established his own publishing company, appropriately named Budgeco, with his sister to distribute Raster Blaster. The game was a hit by the standards of 1981, selling about 2,000 copies per month during its first year on the market. By the end of 1982, Budge said he was earning $120,000 per year just from selling his games. And that December, he released Pinball Construction Set, effectively his follow-up to Raster Blaster. Although Construction Set was not simply a pinball game. Rather, it was a graphical user interface that enabled the player to build their own virtual pinball tables from a collection of pre-made parts. In some respects, the drag-and-drop interface of Pinball Construction Set was a precursor to what Apple would later unveil with its Lisa and Macintosh computers. A few months into publishing Pinball Construction Set, however, Budge decided he didn't want to continue running his own company. He wanted to focus on programming, so he went looking for a new publisher. One potential choice was Broderbund, the software publisher started by brothers Doug and Gary Carlston, which had already published a similar type of game called the Arcade Machine, which let the player create Galaxian-style space shooter levels. 
Doug Carlston later recalled that he pushed hard to acquire the rights to pinball construction set for Broderbund, noting, quote, any software publisher in his right mind would give a great deal to have a Bill Budge on board, unquote. But in the end, Budge signed with Trip Hawkins' startup. As Carlston described Budge's decision, in effect, they told him that the success of their venture, Electronic Arts, depended on his participation. Carlston added that Hawkins even offered Budge stock in the company. And Budge's participation was more than simply developing the product. Trip Hawkins' original concept for EA was to model computer game publishing after the record industry. That meant promoting individual developers as you would musicians and games like albums. In these early days, EA published its games in album-style sleeve packaging and sent star developers like Budge on tours of local computer stores. Budge and Hawkins even made a joint appearance on a February 1984 Computer Chronicles episode to promote Pinball Construction Set and another EA launch title, One on One. It wasn't much of a trip for Hawkins as Chronicles taped right down the street from EA's original offices. On the show, he outlined his approach to game publishing for Stuart Chaffee and Gary Kildall. Trip on, on the business side, what do you look for for a successful software game? Well, I think Pinball Construction Set has a lot of the things that you look for, and that's why it's, it's now one of the top ten sellers in the country, according to Billboard magazine. Uh, we have a philosophy of having products that are simple, hot, and deep. <clears throat> simple so that you don't have to read a lot of instructions. Of course, most people don't want to have to learn how to operate the computer. They want to just uh, do things with it right away. And Pinball Construction Set, you can immediately play one of the pinball games that are included or you can quickly make up one of your own and it's very simple to do that as I think Bill will illustrate. Uh, we also like to have products that are hot uh, in that they should fully use the sound and graphics and other capabilities of the machine and we also look for programs that are deep. In the case of Pinball Construction Set uh, you can make your own pinball game so it has a lot of create, creative uh, possibilities and allows people to control what they're going to make and interact with it and change it and that's one of the things that extends the uh, life of the product and causes people to come back to it again and again. Budge then demonstrated Pinball Construction Set and discussed his plans for the future. This is a, a very simple sort of real-world idea. It's a construction set. You have uh, something that you're building on this side of the screen and a set of parts over here. And I have a hand here that I control with the joystick and I use that to move things around, say, on the board, the game I'm building. I can modify this game and uh, I can get parts out of the box and I can just add them over. So they're kind of bumpers here. you're putting into your game? I'm just putting bumpers, yeah. This is a, a favorite of really young kids. They like to just grab a whole bunch of bumpers, fill the board up with them, and put a ball on there. A pinball aficionado would gasp, but little kids don't really build pinball machines. They just sort of build things with this. And I can get a ball and put that over here. Then if I want to try out the game, I can just push this uh, menu selection right here, and the game starts to play. Now, if you can see, I've got two balls, one up there. I can launch this one, and I can go out and play the game a little bit. And the balls drop down at the, at the bottom eventually. Uh, but before I let that happen, I'll just go back to the parts box and start editing again, get rid of some of these. Bill, this was kind of a, a new level, I suppose, of, of computer game where you really can design the game yourself. What, what, if you can tell us, what are you working on now? What would be the next step in computer games? Um, I want to extend the idea of a construction set. I think this, is, uh, this one was hard to do when I started and, um, because there are lots of combinations and things you can't really predict when you're making a kit to make a metagame, as you said. Um, I'd like to extend the idea even further, and the problem there is then designing the parts box. In pinball, it's a small set of parts. You don't really have to worry about um, thinking up abstractions. Um, in a general um, construction set, it's not clear what the parts should be. It's almost like you're inventing a new language for representing 
um, specifications for programs. It gets a very difficult computer science um, problems. Budge never completed that construction set, construction set idea. And in fact, he largely retired from computer game design after the success of Pinball Construction Set. But Hawkins and EA decided that the construction set concept was a winner. So they quickly started looking for other types of programs that might fit the same model. Which leads back to Will Harvey. Trip Hawkins and his team weren't interested in Harvey's Lancaster game, but they were intrigued by Harvey's music editing program. The now 16-year-old Harvey signed a royalty and distribution agreement with EA, and he spent the next eight months refining his editor into a commercial product, which became Music Construction Set. EA released Music Construction Set in time for the 1983 holiday season. It also caught the attention of Computer Chronicles, which featured Harvey in the third broadcast episode of the series. Harvey appeared on a panel with John Chowning, a Stanford professor who was one of the early pioneers in the field of computer music. Well, you, you guys are different ends of it. John is working at Stanford with a big mini and a complex uh, operation, and you're selling a, a $40 software. Uh, from your end, how do you see computers and music meshing? I mean, how did you get involved in this combination? Well, I think computers are, are a way that people can be introduced to music. And with this program, what we tried to do is allow a person who doesn't know anything about music and who might be intimidated even by it um, to go out and, and to fool around with music already already created or, or to create his own and uh, be able to do everything just, just with a joystick. Maybe you can show us a little bit of, about how a music construction set works. Okay. Well, basically, you're moving around with a joystick, a little hand, and that hand represents your hand. So in order to create music, what you do is you move your hand around and you pick up notes and you set them on the staff, which you see there. After you get the notes set up on the staff, you can move to one of these little pictures here, and the pictures do things. Uh, for instance, if you want to play the music, you go to the little piano, which is there. Or if you want to uh, go to the home position, which is at the beginning of the song, you go to the little home and press the button. I've got a piece here that is included with the product, and so I'll move the hand down to the piano and press the button that'll play through the piece. Then going to the home, we can go and back well, to the beginning of the song. The, the notes going across the staff were showing us the music that the computer's right, playing at the time. Right. Basically, it's uh, tying together what it sounds like and what is on the screen. So it's like having uh, sheet music in front of you that, that scrolls right past your desk. Based on newspaper advertising, EA released Music Construction Set sometime in October 1983 for the Apple II and Commodore 64, with versions available for the IBM PC and Atari 8-bit line hitting store shelves by early 1984. The Apple II posed a special challenge for Music Construction Set, as the machine lacked a dedicated sound chip. Harvey and a colleague, Jim Nichols, managed to work around this limitation in software and found a way to produce up to four simultaneous notes, or voices, using just the Apple's built-in speaker. But this meant relying entirely on the 6502 microprocessor, which slowed the program down such that the written music notation would no longer scroll across the screen as Harvey had designed. But as the Apple II was expandable, a deficiency that Steve Jobs would later correct with the Macintosh, 
a user could restore the full functionality of Music Construction Set by installing an add-on sound card called the Mocking Board. Indeed, Harvey used an Apple IIe equipped with a Mocking Board in his Chronicles demo. Some retailers even package Music Construction Set with a Mocking Board and external speakers for a discount. Notwithstanding the Apple II's limitations, Music Construction Set proved just as big a hit as Pinball Construction Set. By November 1987, the Software Publishers Association certified that Will Harvey's program achieved platinum status, indicating over 250,000 copies had been sold across all platforms. Harvey actually beat Bill Budge, whose Pinball Construction Set achieved similar status six months later. EA also released an upgraded version of Harvey's package, known as Deluxe Music Construction Set, for the Apple IIGS in 1986, although Harvey was not involved in its programming. Electronic Arts published two additional titles in the Construction Set series. The first, Stuart Smith's Adventure Construction Set, came out in November 1984. Stuart Smith had been working as an independent programmer since the early 1970s, primarily developing accounting software. At one point, he decided to write a program to replace himself, which he called Quick and Clean. As Smith described it, Quick and Clean used a file definition and a brief description of a report to generate a COBOL program that would produce the report. The generated program then no longer required Quick and Clean, and it could be separately modified by the user. From this experience, Smith thought it would be possible to write a game to make other games, in a manner of speaking. Smith was already an experienced programmer of dungeon crawl style adventure games, having developed a handful of titles in the early 1980s, and he put that experience to work in creating his new tool. Smith said he was unaware of Bill Budge's work on pinball construction set at the time, and it was only after he sold his project to EA that its marketing department decided to make this the third release in the construction set series. The fourth and final game used the slightly modified descriptor of Racing Destruction Set, which EA announced at the January 1985 Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and released that May. This was, as you probably guessed, a program to build and edit racetracks. The principal designer and programmer on Destruction Set was Rick Koenig, who started his career making games for the Mattel in television. He later followed his former boss at Mattel, Don Daglow, to EA, where Daglow was one of the first people that Trip Hawkins hired as a game producer. Daglow commissioned Koenig to make Racing Destruction Set, and Koenig would later make a standalone racing game for EA, Ferrari Formula One, and even appeared on a December 1987 Computer Chronicles episode to promote it. EA never used the Construction Set title or theme for any releases after Deluxe Music Construction Set came out in 1986. It's not exactly clear why. There were certainly other companies that picked up on the idea of building programs around graphical construction kits, most famously Maxis with its SimCity franchise. But by the late 1980s, EA was growing at a rapid pace and perhaps looking to more lucrative areas of gaming, notably sports titles and later console games, so perhaps the idea of the construction kit was simply considered not mainstream enough anymore, despite the success of Bill Budge and Will Harvey's programs. As for Will Harvey, by 1987 he'd finally graduated from high school and was now attending Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Harvey ultimately earned his bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees in computer science from Stanford. 
During that time, he used the money that he'd earned from royalties on Music Construction Set to start his own software company, Sandcastle Productions, where he continued to develop games as an independent contractor for EA. He ended up doing three games in total. The first, Marble Madness, was a home computer port of a popular arcade game originally released by Atari and licensed to EA. Next, there was Will Harvey's Zany Golf, a mouse-based mini-golf game released on the Apple IIGS in 1988. Finally, there was The Immortal, an isometric action-puzzle-solving game. Originally developed for the Apple IIGS, The Immortal would end up as the most widely ported and distributed of Harvey's commercial games, including a 2020 re-release on the Nintendo Switch. While The Immortal was well-received and likely sold quite well across its multiple platforms, EA wasn't interested in making a sequel. At this point, it was 1990, and Harvey decided to shift Sandcastle's focus from developing computer games to creating tools for online gaming, a market then still in its experimental infancy. Harvey recalled to video game historian Frank Cifaldi in 2005, At the time, multiplayer games were starting to become popular over the internet, and people were using the same programming techniques that worked over local area networks. These techniques didn't work so well over a high-latency network such as the internet. So Sandcastle tried to develop new techniques to reduce that latency. Whatever Harvey and his team did, it was enough to attract a buyer in the form of Adobe Systems, which acquired Sandcastle in March 1997. During this time, Harvey also served as Vice President of Engineering for Rocket Science Games, a short-lived video game startup that had been trying to produce more cinematic games. This was during a period often labeled as the Sillywood era, where there was an attempt to merge Silicon Valley and Hollywood through new technologies such as CD-ROM. Harvey himself said in a 1994 interview that he was working on a CD-ROM game for EA and that, quote, I'm on a 10-year plan to make interactive movies, but nobody really knows what that is, including me, unquote. As it turned out, Harvey never made that CD-ROM game or any interactive movies. After the closing of Rocket Science and the sale of Sandcastle, Harvey's next venture was a startup called Their Studios, which he founded in 1997. Their's original goal was to create a virtual world for online socializing, an idea that would later be realized by projects like Second Life. But in the early 2000s, Their's investors decided to abandon Harvey's proto-metaverse and become a defense contractor selling military simulation software instead. Uninterested in that for some reason, Harvey left there in 2003 and immediately created a new startup, IMVU, to continue his dream of making the second life but not second life. He actually succeeded, and IMVU is still around as of this recording in July 2023. IMVU currently describes itself as, quote, the world's largest Web3 social metaverse, unquote, proving that even an old programming hat like Will Harvey can still adapt to contemporary buzzword marketing. Harvey handed over the reins as IMVU CEO in 2008, but remains its chairman. In 2011, Harvey started yet another company, Finale Inventory, which in contrast to all of the Web3 hoopla, is a fairly conventional software-as-a-service organization focused on inventory management software. Harvey continues to serve as Finale Inventory CEO as of this recording. And that's all for this episode of the Chronicles Revisited podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode, there are links in the show notes. You can also visit my website, Computer Chronicles Revisited, at smoliva.blog. That's S-M-O-L-I-V-A dot blog. 
which contains full episode recaps and analysis. In the next episode, I'll look at Science Toolkit, a 1987 product released by Broderbund Software that garnered not one, but two glowing reviews on Computer Chronicles. Talk to you then.